0: This is Melissa Lau, Associate Pastor of Congregational Care and Missions at Wesley Memorial United Methodist Church. Thank you for subscribing to our podcast. Throughout January, we will be exploring a biblical approach to the usage of the Enneagram for our spiritual formation. Please jump in and learn along with us as we go on this transformative journey. Thanks again for listening. God bless. In October of 2016, Wake Forest University football team played the Louisville Cardinal uh, Cardinals in football in Winston-Salem, and Wake Forest uh, lost the game 44-12. to I know you're probably thinking that sounds about right, sounds about right if you're a Wake Forest football fan. Uh, now, uh, I remember growing up as a kid, uh, we watched Wake play. Uh, my dad's an alumni, so Um, We watched Wake play at Florida State in the early 90s when Florida State was basically an NFL team and they beat Wake 55 to nothing. I remember watching the Florida State team line up in perfect rows and the ref would blow a whistle and they all turn over at the same time. Wake Forest is on the other side of the field sort of picking flowers and lobbing passes to each other and Bobby Bowden didn't even coach. He just sat on a stool the whole game. So I was used to Wake Forest losing but no they've actually gotten pretty good the past few years and But this loss on October of 2016 was different. So it was supposed to be a close game. It was supposed to be, uh, you know, a real struggle. So people were wondering, what happened? And as they they were cleaning up the sidelines at Grove Stadium and Winston-Salem, they went on the Louisville side, and they saw that there were plays on the ground that looked remarkably like Wake Forest offensive plays. And as they dug a little bit deeper, it turns out they were, in fact, the plays of Wake Forest offensive line, team. I'm not a football player. Um, and, and it came to pass that every time that Wake tried to run a play, the Louisville defense was right where they needed to be. And it came to pass that an, a disgruntled offensive coordinator for Wake Forest, who had been fired a few years prior, uh, was, was selling the plays to teams for the highest, to the highest bidder. And thus the Wakey Leaks scandal was born. You know, when your opponent knows what you're going to do, it's awfully hard to have victory. It's almost impossible when they know what you're going to be doing. And so there it is. But when you know your opponent's strategy, when you know what they're going to do, what play they might call, not by cheating, but when maybe you can anticipate what's going to happen, you have the upper hand. You have the chance of victory. During World War II, uh, the Nazi, Nazi Germany had an unbreakable code Uh, They would would encrypt their Morse code messages and no one could figure out what they were, how to break this code. Eventually scientists in Britain and the United States developed the Enigma code breaking machine um, that would eventually break Hitler's code. And, of course, it was top secret. The Germans thought it would never be broken. But for years, the Allies were able to decipher what the Germans were going to do. And they knew where to be. And they knew where they were going to be moving their men on the battlefield. And later, Dwight Eisenhower would say, this was the decisive moment in the war. That's what won the war, was that we knew their playbook. We knew what they were going to be doing. Once you know your enemy's tactic, you know their weaknesses... You can have victory. What we're going to look at today is in the Enneagram, uh, what's, this, what's called the signature sins of each personality type, and it, it really weaknesses that all of us can be prone to based on our design, and what they really are is a twisting of, of good things about our personality. They're a twisting inward, really, once we look at them, you'll see this, of the good aspects of our personality, but they become selfish. They become um, focused on the self or they turn into accusations against other people. And one of the great tactics of our enemy, of our souls, yes, Satan, the devil. Um, now there's, there's aspects to our weaknesses of personality. Some of it could be just be original sin, the effects of original sin on our lives. But I'm gonna be blunt. I think it is also a tactic of the enemy, uh, the devil, Satan. And people may be thinking, you're looking at me and thinking, he looks like a reasonable person. He looks like a well-educated person. Does he really believe in the literal devil? I do. I do. I think it's true. I think it's real. I don't think it's an allegory. I don't think it's a metaphor. I think biblically it's there. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Uh, constantly casting out demons, that's a reality in this world. And so especially in church, we're free to express that. That's, that's a reality that there is a, an enemy of our souls. And his main tactic that he uses, I'm not afraid of this at all, nor should any of us be, but that one of the main tactics he uses against people, religious or not, is that he'll take that which is sacred and desacralize it. That's what he wants to do. Takes the sacred things that God loves and wants to twist them, ruin them, degrade them, desacralize. So for example, your soul is sacred. It's sacred to God. And thus, out of your soul, your spirit is your personality. It's who you are. It's your design. That's sacred. It's sacred to God. He loves it. He loves you. But the enemy of our souls wants to take those things and twist them, ruin them, accuse us of lies, and bring us down. That's what his goal is to do, to take things that are sacred and twist them, even turn them into an idol, or make them inward-focused only even good things good things can be turned very subtly into bad or idolatrous things in cs lewis's book the great divorce one of maybe one of his best fictional books he ever wrote it's a story of the space between heaven and hell and hell is this really ever expanding city it's a very fascinating the allegory he comes up with where people are just separated from themselves and they're 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 always focused on their own needs and wants and desires and they're ever, over eternity, they're growing apart from each other. And then in the middle of that place in heaven, is sort of like the valley of the shadow of death. It's, it's a literal valley of, of there's a mountain range leading into heaven. And a bus will come into hell and take those people that are there and take them into the valley. And then people that knew each other in the former life will come and the people from heaven will come and they'll speak to people that are in hell and, and try and convince them that God still loves you and, you, and you can know the love of God, and, and almost no one chooses to go into heaven. They all choose to get back on the bus and go back to hell. And there was a woman on the bus, I'll never forget in the story, who was so obsessed with her, her little boy, her little son. Uh, a good thing, a child, a good thing. But even though she didn't have her little boy anymore, she couldn't let it go, and, and she wanted to get back on the bus to go check on him. Uh, something good had been twisted and turned. Something that was sacred had been desacralized, and this woman had been deceived by that. In Lewis's other work, called the Great—not uh, the Great—Lewis's uh, other work, *The Screwtape Letters*, which is uh, another fictional story of an older demon writing to a younger demon about ways that he can trip up the souls of men and women and really ruin our lives. Uh, there's a quote in this book where Screwtape writes to the younger demon, Wormwood, and says this, It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, or gambling, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft and underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts a very subtle aspect of how he works in people's lives but I don't want to start a sermon by this only this is not obviously our story as Christians we are not suspect to uh, his work in this world we can have be more than conquerors in Christ and it's important to know that and to realize that that our personalities can be tempered instead with selfishness they can be tempered with the love of God and can be perfected by the love of God in this life so, thus far we've learned about our personality types, we've learned about the centers and motivations of those personality types, and today we're going to look at the uh, signature sin that accompanies each personality type. And the great struggle of this life, especially the life of faith, is really within. It's always within. And there is a war inside that the world cannot see But with God's help, we can see what our weaknesses are and turn those into strengths. So it's a lot of, this may be the most important message of the whole month because we're going to get a better picture of what do we do with some of this. And that's why the Enneagram is a great spiritual tool that tells us the good things about a personality, but also shows us some of the dark stuff that once, now that we know it and acknowledge it, we're able to uh, turn, like I said, turn it into a strength, So before I look at the personality type and each accompanying signature sin, um, here's a quick word about what we'll get into and what we won't. The nine sins of the personality types, they're just that. They're just vulnerabilities based on how we're wired up. And just to acknowledge that. They're not all the sins people can can have. They're not all the temptations we will face. They're not all the ways that we can undermine our lives but they are specific to maybe how we're wired. And like I said, they're an overstatement or an overcorrection of our strengths, or they're a twisting or a desacralization of the sacred that God has placed within each of us. You'll see that there's an overlap with the Christian list of the seven deadly sins, and with the addition of fear and deceit, which I would acknowledge there should be nine deadly sins because those are pretty bad too. All right, here are the nine. One, type one, is prone to anger. Type two is prone to pride. Three, to deceit. Four, to envy. Five, to greed or avarice. Six, to fear. Seven, to gluttony. Eight, to lust. And nine, to sloth. And I'm going to dive into those one by one in just a moment. Now, what's important to acknowledge here when you see this list is you see all those sins listed, they all are being, you're all being turned inward, They all turn to something that's about yourself or an accusation against somebody else. And isn't that fascinating that this is what the Enneagram would call the adapted self or the false self. We're not operating in the way God has designed us, but we're operating in the way of being really kind of being led astray. Now, and secondly, I'll say this. You could see see some of these and go, well, I'm not a a glutton. I'm not driven by lust. Uh, I I don't really need to worry about that. But there are a lot of dynamics to this. And of course, human personality has a lot of dynamics of how we're designed and how God has made us. Because some of these things, I could be more prone to things that you're not. And you could be prone to things that don't mess up my stride whatsoever. That we all have uh, maybe secret struggles that we just don't show or people don't see, but they're not better or worse uh, than any other. So now, Like I said also, these nine sins, it's not the end of sin exploitation in our lives. You can't be like, well, I'm a nine, so goodbye lust. Don't have to worry about that anymore. Like, no, that's not true, unfortunately. Um, But they are ways that we maybe lean toward based on how we're wired. So as we've said before, this whole series is a lifelong Uh, as a quick take on a lifelong process of sanctification. There's not a quick answer to sanctification. There's no drive-through, you know, quick answer to this. It's a lifelong process of growing in holiness. But this message today, as I said, is so critical because it it helps us acknowledge the weaknesses that maybe we have. And once you know it, they don't have as much strength over you as they used to, and that is really good news, to lay aside some of these weaknesses. And this looks like Hebrews 12, which... Encourages us to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, just to lay aside those things. And then you can run the race with perseverance in the race that is set before us. The Apostle Paul would write about this and say, you know, put to death the things that are causing you to stumble. You know, this is fascinating to think about because sometimes Christians, we can just get into sin management. We'll just sort of manage our sins, sort of like moving the deck chairs on the Titanic. You know, we sort of deal with it. We'll try to manage it. We'll try and keep it in line, try really hard not to do it. But the Bible does not say that. It doesn't say manage your sin, it says root it out, get rid of it. Jesus himself would say, if your eye or your hand causes you to sin, we'll cut it off. Obviously, it's not literal, don't cut your hand off. Um, But he's saying, take it seriously. If something is tripping you up, cut it out. Get rid of it. Run away from it. Don't just tolerate it. Like Martin Luther said, you cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. And I think that's true. So we're going to dig into some of these signature sins a little bit and really listen to each one because while it might not be you at all, um, it could be your spouse or it could be one of your children. And it could be give you some insight as to how uh, maybe something they're struggling with, and to help you understand it, or a coworker help you understand them, and have a little more empathy for where they are in their lives. Uh, first is anger, which is, goes with type one. Type one's the reformer. Who, is everybody? Who, does anybody here know what your types are? Has anybody done this yet? Do we have any types one in the room? Any one types? Got a few? Okay, I'm a nine with one wing. So I definitely relate to this reformer part. Reformers um, are a little bit perfectionist. They, like, they see things how they should be done, and, uh, and that's good. They want things to be done a certain way. You can be compulsive even about trying to perfect the world around you. Again, this is a good thing. Um, but if anyone else doesn't live up to their high standards, then they can experience anger in the form of resentment why aren't you doing it as good as I could have done it? I can't trust you to do it again because you'll really suck at it. So let me take charge of that. So then you see this anger. So really the dark side of one is um, a word could be irritated. You could be perpetually irritated because it's sitting underneath the surface and people aren't quite living up to the standards that you set. Again, all of these, what am I talking about? These are how you can feel. You're not determined to do this, but this is how you can feel who is the helper and helpers can struggle with pride Now that sounds counterintuitive to someone that likes to help people but the flip side of being a good helper is you direct all of your attention and energy toward meeting the needs of other people and you disavow your own needs and your secret belief is that maybe you know what's best for others and that you think that maybe you're a little bit indispensable sometimes and so you could have a, an inflated view of your own power and value to others. Again, it's just it's an overstatement of your strength. It's a strength to be a helper. It's a good thing. Three of uh, the achiever is deceit. Achievers um, are, are really the life of the party. They're, they're, they're good to talk to. They, they like to look good. They have good, want to have a good appearance. These are good things. It's a good thing. But the sin of deceit is not because they deceive others as much as they want to deceive themselves. You kind of want to be someone else, maybe, in order to impress somebody else. And so you could lose touch with who you authentically are. So an immature three could, maybe they haven't reflected on their personality or you brought Christ to bear, and so they need to win and have everyone think that everything is easy for them. So there's the three. Uh, four, individualist, is envy. Uh, fours believe you're missing something essential without which they will never be complete. Left unchecked, they always compare themselves to other people and walk away feeling inferior. You could feel this way. Don't have to. But there's this never-ending quest to find the missing piece that will somehow make them feel happy. And five, the investigator, uh, is avarice or Greed an old word for greed. Fives can hoard those things that they believe will ensure they can live an independent, self-sustaining life. This withholding ultimately leads to their holding back love and affection from others. They don't think they have enough inner resources or energy to meet the demands of life. So greed isn't just craving money, as we think, but uh, this another type of greed can come a different way. It's a desire to retain to clench, to protect what little you already have with a desire to gather more. And this can lead to isolation where you hold back on love and affection from people who most want support and care from you. Am I I ringing anybody's bell at this point? When I get to nine for me, I definitely rung, rung my bell. Six is loyalist. And it can be fear for the loyalist. They can imagine the worst case scenario, question their own ability to handle life on their own, an apprehension of what might happen. Worst case scenarios can go through your mind more than others. When everything's going great, you can feel anxious or upset about uh, how great things are, what might happen. So they're constantly looking for ways to feel secure. Seven, uh, the enthusiast. You're always enthusiastic, excited about life. You love new experiences and and going after it. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing. But gluttony is not just eating too much and being overweight. But the enthusiast can be a glutton for uh, gorging yourself on a positive experiences. Just constantly wanting that high of adventure and new things. And that's a good thing. But it can be too much uh, of a good thing. You can feel never satisfied uh, sevens have a boundless love for life, but that can also be, a, like I said, a bit too much of a, of a good thing. Eight, the challenger, could be lust. Challengers, uh, as the name implies, they want to challenge what's going on around them. They want to improve things around them. They, uh, they can be domineering. They could be, be a little bit confrontational. Uh, they can speak bluntly. They can have a hard exterior maybe to mask a bit of our vulnerability. And so the lust that shadows an eight, it's not necessarily sexual in nature, of course, though it could be, um, but they lust after intensity. If they, find, if they can't find any intensity or, or think something to challenge, they'll maybe even cook it up. But spiritually healthy, self-aware eights, they love to do what can't be done. And that is awesome. It's a great strength their energy harnessed, can challenge and make the world a better place. Think about Martin Luther King Jr., who was an eight. But a spiritually underdeveloped eight is not someone you want to hang out with your children. Think about Joseph Stalin, who was also an eight. So you see the flip side of these. Finally, we have nine, the peacemaker. And the signature sin of that is sloth. And I totally resonate with this as a peacemaker, as a nine. Because I'll, I'll catch myself and 30 minutes have gone by and I've been watching you know, basketball highlight videos on YouTube and didn't even know I'd done it. You just sort of, everything's cool, everything's happy, everyone's good, you know, and, and you just sort of check out. You just want to gorge yourself on just being chill and, and watching Netflix and, and sort of you know going with the flow. And, and the peacemaker almost needs the good side of anger to, to move you forward, to motivate you. Um, and to pursue that instead of coping and just sort of going along and being at peace with everything all the time. You see how there's a good thing, a peacemaker's a good thing. But it can be turned and twisted into something that's not good, that's become selfish and not very productive. So when you hear all of this stuff, I know that's a lot to process, you know, what do you do with all of this? Obviously, one way is to own it, to embrace it, it's sort of like looking in the mirror, and you know maybe it's hard to look at, but once you know our weaknesses, our vulnerabilities, they can, we can turn those into strengths. I remember the actor, uh, uh, Martin Downey Jr., had struggled with drugs and alcohol for many, many years, and a friend in Hollywood helped him out of his, his predicament he was in. The friend was Mel Gibson. When Mel Gibson, who also had struggles with alcohol, would help Martin... Uh, would help Downey Jr. go into rehab and and put his life back together. And Mel Gibson said, you know, to find your step toward healing and restoration for your addictions, Gibson would say to Downey Jr., he said, you've gotta learn how to hug the cactus. That's what he said, hug the cactus. And Downey Jr. said this was revelation for him, that it's okay to look at the ugly part of your life that you're not proud of and embrace it and not feel like it's something you have to hide. Because here's the truth, everybody has a hidden struggle that everyone else doesn't know about, right? Every stranger you meet has something they're struggling with that no one can see. And we're going to hear about that next week when we talk about a ministry of, of, of reconciliation, of having empathy for other people more, when we see that everyone has a struggle they're going through. And a first step toward healing is to, is to go to work on that stuff. You know, so for me, like I said, I know that maybe I need a little more discipline in my life. I have to build that into my life. If you're a one and you're kind of perfectionist, maybe you need to pump the brakes a little bit. Don't be so hard on people around you and everyone's not just like you are. You see that? You see how our weaknesses can become strengths to own it, to embrace it. And there is such power to self-awareness. And the good news too about our faith is that Jesus is with us every step of the way when we take a step forward, maybe two steps back, didn't go the way we planned, we failed at this point in our lives. I didn't live up to what I was trying to do. The good news is that there is forgiveness each day, that God loves us. He, he's not given up on us. There's no, he hasn't condemned us, amen? So if your life is broken and in a million pieces, he's with you in the brokenness. Do you, if you feel overcome by those weaknesses, he is there with you in the midst of that. If, if you don't know that he's there and you can't necessarily see it, he's there. You'll look back and see that he was there, he was there, he was with me. He's always been there, and you all, he always will be. And, and that we never walk alone. You never walk alone in this life. And that is such good news to hear that, again, we all have private struggles that maybe we think no one else can relate to, but in fact, absolutely somebody can. And that's why accountability is so important in our Christian faith. Being in some sort of group or, or Bible study or, or just having a conversation and prayer with people. That's why it's so important to know that you're not alone, that, that you're really not yourself by yourself, and that we need that in this life. But not only do we need that community with the believers, but we have community with God. We have that communion with God, and that He knows our weaknesses. One of my favorite Psalms says that God knows that we are but made of dust. He remembers, He knows. Just like in Job where he, you know, God, he says that God fashioned us and formed us. He knows that we are prone to weakness and faultiness and that he'll help us in our weaknesses. So as we close this time of, uh, continue, get close to closing a time of worship, uh, let, me, let me say a prayer for us and pray for each of you. Lord, we thank you that you are with us, that we never walk alone, that we don't have to listen to the, the lies of an enemy who maybe accuses us of things that just aren't true that we are not who he says we are. We are not defined by our weaknesses. We are not defined by maybe a signature sin that we struggle with. But God, that, that I pray that we would be reminded that there is such freedom in the struggle. It's better to struggle than to not. It's better to be aware of the deceit than to be lost in it. And that, that's a great step forward of not only growing as a human being, but growing as a disciple of you, of yours, Jesus. God, we thank you that every step of the way in our lives, we couldn't see it, you were with us. In the moments that we failed and we were weak and we didn't do it right, you're with us. And when we're on top of the mountain and everything was great and it was just clicking and we got it right, you're with us. God, your love sustains us. God, and you call us to be holy, Lord, as you are holy, and to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. And when I hear that, God, I think that's impossible. I can't do that. And God, the good news is that we can't. I can't be perfect on my own strength. That's why it's called grace. You pour out your spirit upon us because you love us. You know that we're but made of dust. And you love us the same. God, there's no words to express how incredible your love is for your people. And that you take us in your arms and you never let us go. Nothing will separate us from your love, oh God. Death can't, hell can't, the devil can't, the demons can't, nothing is going to separate us from your love. Let us walk in that victory as a people who walk in the light, who walk in the truth, who walk in the newness of life that you give us. Amen. Let us stand together, my friends.